Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast is all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. This week we're going to be looking at humanness. Today's guest is seriously smart. Research tells me she has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's in neuroscience and a doctorate in clinical psychology. Say what? As well as that, she has just written a Sunday Times best-selling book, A Manual for Being Human. So without further ado, Dr. Sophie Mort, what an intro, hey? Look how clever you are. Well, yeah, I'd like you to come with me everywhere and introduce <laughs> that I walk into. Thank you. It's, it's really remarkable. Sometimes I think we all need to just sit back and go, oh, wow, yeah, I've been quite busy and I've, I've achieved a lot. Yes, yes, I agree. It's amazing. It's really amazing. But I've got three, actually, in the context of that intro, not very important questions, but I believe them to be important. How are you really? What is your star sign and what is your favourite biscuit? Oh my word, I love this. How am I really? Um, I, you have a book that's not been long out in the world and I, I'm only a few weeks ahead of you mm. and I would say, how am I really? I am a real mixed bag of emotions. I realised actually, perhaps only in the last two weeks that I've been running purely on adrenaline. Yes, for so long. Yes, for so long. In the build-up to the book, the excitement about it coming out in the world and the utter fear of being uh, vulnerable, exposed, commented upon, absolutely. Um, To then the adrenaline of doing press every day, to then it actually being in the past and suddenly my nervous system has finally settled. But honestly, there was a crash. (laughs) So I'm now coming back up the other side feeling a little bit more calm, I think. Yeah. Um, and centered. Second question, what star sign? Yeah. I'm a Gemini. Are you? Typical what Gemini? You? I'm a Pisces, so um, extremely emotional. <laughs> and do you feel like it fits? Yeah, I do. I, I, You know what, I spent so long resisting it, and then I just, yeah, I just, yeah, I've accepted it. I've accepted it. I, you know, for me, the, my Piscesness, which is very creative and very emotional, is is a blessing and a curse. How about your <laughs> Gemini-ness? Are you into star signs at all? Yes, big time, Good. big time. Uh, it's really funny. I uh, lived in New York a few years ago, and before I moved there, if you'd asked me what my star sign was, I'd be like, oh, Gemini, whatever. And now in, yeah, in New York, I know my rising sign. Yeah, I was gonna... Yeah, I know everything. And I'm like, a, I'm a really proud Gemini because we're one of the um, controversial star signs. Mm. If you know that, yes. Um, because we can swing from being one kind of personality to the uh, to the opposite side quite quickly. People are often like, oh, you're Gemini. I'm like, yeah, I'm Gemini and I am proud. Come at me. <laughs> so but, you know, I'm happy to be Gemini. Yeah, and also I think... If we're all a bit more honest with ourselves, we've all got those multiple sides of us and actually learning to be okay with, I don't know, showing up in diff- different guises of yourself is is something pretty cool, I think. 
Yeah, I like that we have a dark side as well. I think yeah. growing up, I was always like, I'm the good girl. And then after a while, I was like, well, I could swear, but I won't because this is recorded. But like, like sod that. I No, I want to be all the different aspects of myself I can be. And some of that is quite dark. Exactly that. I think that's a bit the same with me in the resistance of my of my Piscesness, the emotional side. I, I yeah, I kind of thought everyone was like this, and then when you realise that you're not, you're like, okay, well, this is the way I am. It, yeah, as I say, it's a blessing and a curse. And also, yeah. your favourite biscuit. This is a very important question. Oh, this is a very important question. I don't know the answer to this question, so I'm going to go straight just with a chocolate digestive or to- oh no no no. Chocolate, chocolate hobnob. There you go. She's, she's got it. Yeah. She's got it. I mean, she's They're got really it. good dunkers. They're really good for dunking in tea. They're an exceptional biscuit. There's no two ways yeah. about it. I don't think, I think it's a question that doesn't need overthinking. Whatever comes to you is, is your is your true being. <laughs> well, the thing is, there was this, this, there was this biscuit in my childhood called a boaster. Did you ever have yes. one? Yes. Chocolate covered, like a small bar, more on a peng- penguin kind of size. Really delicious. Mm. And I don't know, so my initial impulse was to say that, but I don't know if they exist anymore. It's a very so good question. Chocolate hobnob. We'll throw that out to some research as soon as we get off this to find out. It was a poster of bar or was it a chunky biscuit? It was a chunky biscuit. Mm. Yeah, but I feel like actually, I mean, I'm not going to spend the podcast talking about places, <laughs> but that was quite unique at the time. Now, actually, that's almost like a subcategory, isn't it? Yeah, it was a bougie biscuit. It was a bougie biscuit before before everyone was doing that. Um, well, I'm really distracted by that. Just to pick up on, well, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about your book. The the ad- existing on adrenaline thing is really interesting. I've just come back from really two weeks off and it took me so long to get to a point of being grounded. And then there was a day when I was sitting waiting for my kids to do something and I sat, I realised for 20 minutes without doing anything. And I, you know, and that is like the first time I hadn't reached for my phone. I hadn't had any guilt I just sat and my to be honest my brain felt like mush and it was a very happy feeling yes yes and things like um even posting on Instagram I often think that I do it and I do do it out of choice I do it because I want to share psychology Mm -hmm. that's the whole reason I left my NHS job was to get information out there but I realized when I started when I took a break like you're saying took two weeks holiday at the beginning I was still posting and suddenly when I stopped I was like I just I I just don't I just don't want to post. I don't want to post. Say. I've got nothing to say. I've said it all in the book. <laughs> I've said it all in the press interviews. And now I just need to sit in a darkened room and stare at a wall for a few weeks to let my brain just kind of regroup. Mm. It's a huge processing job, isn't it? Huge. Mm. Um, but it it is a relief to feel a little bit like myself again and I really and it's really difficult because we're on a similar timeline of writing and putting it out during the last 18 months or the last two years of the pandemic so I don't know what is book insanity and pandemic (laughs) insanity but I do know I feel a bit more yeah average at the moment which is really pleasing yeah it's glorious feeling totally middle ground yeah run of the mill that's what I want to feel forever. <laughs> yeah, because uh, highs and lows are, are are brilliant and and a privilege. But um, yeah, it's it's really nice to be at this point. I think. So what was um, now? You're, I'm actually basically we are doing book press now. Sorry, but I will hopefully try and move it different ways. What was your ambit? Well, first of all, introduce your book and give us a little bit about what your ambition 
for it was. Um, so my book is a manual for being human. And my ambition for it was essentially based in my own experience of being human, firstly. So at the age of 18, I had my first panic attacks. They came out of nowhere. I had no really framework to understand what I was going through. I mean, I'd seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest, even though it's way before my time. Um, and that was really the only reference point I had. So I was like, well, if this is a mental health issue, then I am either mad or bad and my life is over because that's how it's constructed in that film, mm -hmm. which obviously made the panic much worse. And then when I eventually got therapy and I was taught how to um, use lots of coping skills that got my anxiety under check, I was like, how come we have the information that can make sense of this terrifying experience that made me think I was dying? And I had to wait until I'd hit rock bottom to find this out. So at that point, I was like, right, I'm going to learn everything I can about psychology and then I'm going to share it with people before they need it. So as I never do anything by half, as you said, I did a master's and a doctorate and really learned everything I could. And throughout my training, so you work in the NHS throughout training. I was seeing the exact same thing really as I'd experienced, as in people sitting on waiting lists for an extended period of time, getting to the top of the waiting list, never having been given, given the basic psychological information that would have helped them the moment distress would have arisen. Mm. So, and it, we are so lucky, right? We have free healthcare, but within free healthcare, it means long waiting lists often and a limited number of sessions. Mm -hmm. So whilst I didn't mind giving the same basic information, it ate up that precious time that we had. For some people, being given the basics about, for example, the fight or flight response mm -hmm. and certain scientifically back coping skills was enough. They then didn't need any further support. For others, that's where the nuanced work started. So a manual for being human is more than the basic psychological information that you could have been taught in school or at any time period, but weren't. Mm -hmm. It starts off with your first breath and takes you through to wherever you are in your life right now making sense of how everything you come across day in, day out shapes you, how you then shape the world in return and gives you an arsenal of coping skills that you can uh, practice so that whatever life throws at you, because it will throw something mm. stressful at you at some point, you know that you have something that you can do. I mean, you've nailed that. And, it, and it's so true. It really does. It really does do that. I've, I've been reading it and thinking, oh, wow, all the hours of different kinds of therapy and different kinds of my own learnings through various crises. As you say, you know, the first panic attacks of yeah, late 20s breakdowns, etc., or Saturn returns if you're into astrology, etc., etc. Um, it, it is all in there. And I think, yeah, it, it, it's so readable and approachable, but you manage to boil down some very what I know to be quite complex things, but I love the structure that you that follow and it's what I'm going to follow now in interviewing you, which is the how how you got there. And I'm just going to pull out a little bit from each section because they're the, the bits that spoke to me. So again, these are the kind of cores for what I know of psychology, which is attachment styles and then the relationships to your siblings and labels. Can you talk a bit more about those kind of areas? 100%. Um... So essentially, um, it, it's so fascinating, really, how humans evolve. We often, and I think we really used to believe this, that your DNA, your genetics kind of dictated who you were going to become. And whilst that is partially true, 
uh, babies come into the world when their brains are only really a third fully developed. So it means your DNA is the, I suppose, the blueprints mm-hmm. um, and the structure which is going to build who you are. But much like an architect would build a house and adapt the house based on the terrain it is being built in, your DNA, yes, acts as the blueprint, but you evolve depending on the environment that you grow up in. So attachment theory, attachment essentially just means the bond you have with your primary caregivers. And those earliest relationships shape not only the relationships you're going to have in life, but they literally shape the way that your brain develops. It's so fascinating how we are each um, shaped by everything we live through day in, day out, but particularly those early years. Mm. So if, for example, you had a primary caregiver, I say that because it's not, it's not everyone's parents, mm-hmm. If you have a primary caregiver who meets your needs in the ways that you need them to, I don't mean kind of comes every single time you cry and Molly cuddles you. I mean, is there for you when you need them to, makes sense of the world and your experiences and soothes your distressed nervous system. You would develop what we call a secure attachment style. This means that you're um, you're not kind of, triggered or stressed out in the presence of others new people because you believe you are worthy of care and love and you believe that other people will be there for you should you need them to be now roughly 50 percent of the population has this secure attachment style for the rest of us and i'm in the insecure camp i'm outing myself now there's no shame in this we tend to fall into two main categories. There is another category, but that's 2% of the population. So I'm not going to focus on that now. You might have an avoidant attachment style. And this is me. It means you um, adapt to your environment by coming, becoming like a cat. So you know how cats, they'll kind of come over to you. They'll give you their love and affection. But if you lean in too quickly, they pull away. Gone. Yeah. So if, for example, one or more of your primary caregivers were reliably not there for you, what children do, because they're constantly adapting to their environment to stay safe and get what they need, that child or you will basically start to become hyper-independent. You'll stop asking for the kind of care that you need. You You become that person who says, I don't need others. I can rely on myself. Now, we call this really pseudo-independence because it's not really, I don't need others. It's deep down, I fear that others won't be there for me. So I'm going to be hyper-independent to manage. Yeah. Mm. Then we have the anxious attachment style, who I always like to think of as like a, a fun puppy. You know how puppies bounce up and down? They're like, hi, hi, I'm here. Let's hang out. Give me attention. I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those children, basically, they will have had a caregiver, one or more caregivers, who intermittently give them what they need. So that means this child isn't able to say, oh, I know that when I ask for support, they're going to be here. It's a case of sometimes they will. Mm. Super smart. They adapt by going, right, I'm just going to keep initiating attention. I'm going to keep asking for what I need because at some point they are going to give me Give me that thing. They are going to meet my needs. So those people might be described as the needy child or the clingy child, which is never a negative. 
what the reason I went back to DNA and saying that we are shaped by our environment is almost everything that you did as a child that we did as children mm-hmm. was an attempt to stay safe and stay close to the people we know and love. Mm. And so your brain development is literally shaped by whether your needs were met and whether and what you did to adapt to get those needs met. Mm. It's so mad and you like as you're talking I'm like my brain's going through all the people I know and the way they relate and then you and then I mean as you well know the next foundations of that is if you're in couples and you've got two people with very different attachment styles you know the needy person and the avoidant you end up in in very difficult cycles don't you yeah and actually there's there's nothing quite as painful as that feeling and so we need to be careful in talking about attachment styles as if they're concrete. So yes, I have an avoidant attachment style. And yes, when it comes to dating in general, I will be the person that holds the other person at arm's length. Mm -hmm. So initiates contact. But then if someone gets a little bit too emotionally close and my, this all happens below the level of consciousness, we refuse to push people away. If someone gets too emotionally close, I might do something that distances them. Whilst that is true, that it is my main kind of attachment style, we actually shift throughout our life so for Mm -hmm. example someone who has a secure attachment style may go through a hideous breakup and then become more anxious or i'm at work say i'm at work and i'm talking to people i'm actually incredibly secure around my emotional needs but also i once dated someone who this is not a science term who out avoided (sighs) me right who was more avoidant than i was and what was so extraordinary about this was I had my first dose of the other of, of anxious attachment styles. So often what we find is people with an anxious attachment style might gravitate towards people with avoidant attachment styles and vice versa. And then we end up in this absolutely um, excruciating cycle. Mm. The anxious person leans in, the avoidant person panics and pulls away. The anxious person uses the skill that they know has worked for them in the past, so leans in even more. The avoidant person pulls away even more. Mm. The anxiety created inside the person with the anxious attachment style can actually make them feel like they're going mad. I really do not underestimate, you know, Mm. I'm not trying to overestimate, sorry, that. It's when you have an anxious attachment style, you survived by centering the person who was important in your life in the middle of your thoughts at all times. Mm-hmm. You date someone who's avoidant, they will, you become fixated on them. It's all you can think about and you feel anxious all the time unless they suddenly turn around and go, hey babe, can't wait to hang out, love you so much. And they're like, oh. maybe it's okay, until the doubt creeps in. So yes, our attachment styles that developed when we are very little do shape that kind of blueprint of how we show up mm-hmm. dating later life but it can also change depending on who you're dating. I think the point of understanding this is to show, to be able to understand that about yourself because in in that madness or in either, in either situation, until you can check it on yourself, you fall into these patterns and... Yeah, and, it, and it, as you say, it's in it's a deeply subconscious level. And actually, I think, well, I know for myself, I can ease myself out of my own patterns, but only by being aware of them. 100%. And also, there's so much self-blame and shame in the way that we date, for example. 
So um, people, and I've done this in the past, and it's terrible, and I won't do it again, but I, before I understood attachment styles, might date someone with an anxious attachment style and call them needy and actually mm. really admire them, right? Like, what's wrong with you? Why do you need me? Because I didn't recognize that this was their incredible survival strategy from when they were young. And what they were doing was showing me that they were anxious. And that the way I needed to approach this was actually by communicating on both sides, mm -hmm. my needs, their needs and having a conversation. So when we understand our attachment style, we understand what's driving our physical sensations and our behaviors. Mm -hmm. We're able to decide, does this behavior actually meet my needs? Because often pulling away, for example, doesn't normally meet your needs. Mm. Neither does really leaning in over and over. And you can end up communicating with the people around you what you actually need rather yeah. than just acting it out. So yeah, learning about this isn't fatalistic. It's not saying, oh, well, if you call yourself needy right now, you're doomed. No, no, no. It's saying, it's okay. There's a reason you feel like this. And there's so many things you can do about it. Yeah, and that's so liberating. And same with if you become a bit avoidant, if you can say, look, I just need some space. This isn't on you. It really, because and that all sounds like you're fobbing someone off, but you're you're really not. You you yes. just need that pause, don't you? Yes, and I think what is really difficult is actually in like our thirties, the dating pool is now unfortunately mainly made up of people with avoidant attachment styles because they're most likely to cycle in and out of relationships. Wow. Yes, and this is really tricky because this means when you're dating, you don't know if the person in front of you has an avoidant attachment style or whether they're just not again not interested <laughs> not interested and also <laughs> a bit of a uh, insert derogatory term here yes yeah i mean like are they messing you around or do they just need space mm. but the way that you find out is you simply ask you know as in like okay do you need space because this is just your pattern yeah that when people get close to you you simply need a break or is this something else? And if someone says, no, I really like you, this is just my pattern, take them at face value, give them that space in the first time. If they keep pushing you away and it's you've communicated what you need, then that's probably the time to leave. Mm. Communicate what you need, see if they can meet that need. If not, have another conversation. Otherwise, maybe you aren't compatible. And, and similarly, to, and, and go through the, the same sense check if you, if you sway the other way, you know, if if that instinct to, to go towards someone and go towards someone, if you can try and check yourself and, and just come back from it. Yes, yes. Would you say you're which whereabouts? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering which I am because I can re really recognise myself in both. I think probably, probably needy, yeah. but if someone does that to me, I, 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 I pull right back. Yes. So we, and that's what I mean. Like it's actually quite, it's not ideal to imagine that these things are fixed, but it's just, and it, actually it's really helpful to recognize, oh, right now I might be in the anxious stage or, oh, right now I might be an avoidant. And to people who's listening thinking, ah, oh, I'm in the needy camp. I'm in the anxious camp. One thing that really helps me is this analogy of a gardener. Okay. So imagine you've planted some seeds in the soil or um, as you can tell, not green fingered. <laughs> I have no clue, but basically you put your seeds in whatever it is you grow seeds in, right? And you water it. And then you know that if you overwater new seeds, they die, yeah? If you underwater seeds, they die. Mm. Now, if you imagine with an anxious attachment style, 
your um, your skill, the thing you do to ensure your relationship survive is give it attention. Having an anxious attachment style is like being an overzealous gardener. The new seeds of the relationship are there, so you give it some attention, a little mm. bit of water. Then you think, oh no, they're pulling away. So you give it another little bit of water. Yeah. And then maybe they come back, so you give it a little, another bit of water. What often happens, not always, is if we're unaware of our own processes, we overwater the new seeds of a relationship and flood them. Mm. So if you can catch yourself constantly giving that metaphorical water, as in more and more attention when you think someone's pulling away, and recognize, oh, seeds need a bit of space mm -hmm. and occasional water, it'll help ground you back in the moment and give you choice over how you act. That's it. It's, it's, it's any of these, either way, when you feel like your rational mind has checked out. And yeah, it's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling. And you're in either way, you're kind of grabbing to ground yourself and you don't know how to do it. But I so wish that I'd known some of this. But then it's difficult. How can you know before you know? And as you say, because when you were talking about making this information available to people before they need it. I was thinking about a dentist, you know, we all know we have to clean our teeth long before we get a filling, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But I've only ever accessed this kind of stuff on, oh yeah, off the back of being in, in tricky situations. And then it, it's harder to, you're, you're relying on it too much, aren't you? I think that sometimes, I'm going off on a complete rant now, but sometimes where people want this kind of information to work a miracle, it can yes. only, it, and and in order to make big changes or to get out of sticky situations, ultimately it takes work from the individual and but through the, the lens of this stuff. Yeah, and it takes time. It takes time. You know, <laughs> psychology is is grey area. So if we imagine medicine is black and white, right? You have, um, let's say, you have the flu or you don't. Yeah, you've broken your leg or you haven't. In psychology, um, it's like, oh, there might be a little bit of attachment style playing up, or it might be that you have a memory of being cheated on that's getting in the way of how you feel in your relationship. Mm -hmm. um, this is why therapy is different to reading an Instagram post. You need someone who understands the nuance of your lived experience to make sense of how you feel. Mm -hmm. so psychology is in this gray area. It's not an exact science until you know what exactly pertains to you. So that's the first thing is I think people often access psychology when they're really struggling. Yeah. And they're already anxious, so it's hard to take on new information. Then, because they're getting a lot of information in bite-sized chunks that aren't, isn't nuanced, mm -hmm. they're trying to almost uh, put a square peg in a round hole. This must work for me, and it must work all the time. And then finally, our brain doesn't like to change. It just mm -hmm. doesn't, right? It, if it's kept you alive for 20, 30, 40, 50 years by doing one thing or a few things, such as, I don't know, pushing people away in relationships or avoiding the things that make you feel anxious. Mm -hmm. When you try and do something new, your brain's like, oh, hell no. I've kept you alive for decades doing this. And you, oh, you're going to try, you're going to try this new statistic or this new um, exercise that someone else has told you about. No way, mate. No. So it resists your new ways of being. So... It really is about finding one or two new pieces of information around psychology, seeing if it fits for you, if it resonates for you, mm -hmm. and then putting it into practice over a long period of time. That's so true. And you're the first person I've really heard talk about that. Because in your next section, which is what keeps you here, and I've just picked out a few that mm -hmm. sung to me, 
so this ends up being like a private therapy session but that's like the, the ones that really resonated with me was shame versus guilt control and addiction mm-hmm. um and you know they they might sound quite broad but they're all the little bits that that make up who you are and so if we take the attachment theory and then we look at addiction and i am two years without drinking and you know what kind of recovery that is is subject to conversation but i think it's interesting if you add substances into dating that's Mm -hmm. all i could think i kept on thinking of the drunk young clemmy and you pour a load of booze onto me and i go to the the extreme version of my attachment style basically booty call and drink (laughs) drunk dialing anyone i've ever met um and these are why it becomes so complicated because you you layer in these parts of it don't you yes and this is and this is what was so important to me writing this book because (laughs) there are a lot of self-help books out there let's be honest right when i set out to do this work um there was hardly anywhere to turn if you were struggling in relationships or with panic attacks or with your inner critic Mm -hmm. now it's flooded, right? Mm-hmm. You can find an Instagram, a ther- you know, a therapist on Instagram talking about these things the moment you want to. You can find a book on anything. But to date, what someone hadn't done was taken all the multiple different aspects of being human and put them into one book, tying them all together. So I like to think of a manual for being human almost like a choose your own adventure, where you go through it from the beginning to the end, or you dip in and out depending on what you're going through. It could be a breakup, someone you know and love's died, or you could be struggling with a strong emotion. You go through it and you're like, that bit applies to me, and I can use these questions to guide, to figure out why it applies to Mm -hmm. me. And then I can layer it up with a little bit of this, like you said, so attachment, a little bit of shame thrown in there, a little bit of control and a little bit of alcohol, for example. That's your, cho- your um, not chosen adventure. <laughs> no, it's the opposite. <laughs> chosen disaster. <laughs> well, chosen disaster, you say, but you know, what's really extraordinary about this is when we're not taught adequate coping skills, things that work, teenagers will do the best they can to find a way to cope. Mm-hmm. Alcohol, for example, is a really fast and effective way of distancing yourself from shame, for example, Mm -hmm. from numbing yourself from anxious emotions, Mm -hmm. and gives you a momentary release of, oh, I'm living my best life, or I'm this person that um, I really want to be or think I need to be. Mm -hmm. Obviously, then there's a crash on the other side. But going back to babies always adapting to get their needs met, Throughout our life, if we're not given the right coping skills, we will just find something that works for us. So I know you say it's not, you know, your chosen adventure, but actually how smart was teenage Clemmy to find something that took the edge off? Yeah. Needed to be something that now I'm assuming you've replaced with something that's more functional for you, helps you bet more in your life. But I'm assuming teenage you didn't think, I want this to be a disaster. No, and had a great time with it, like everybody does. I think that's what's, you know, that's a whole different conversation, but alcohol is extremely useful in so many ways for all the Mm. things that we want it to do until Mm. it's not. Until for me, people, my big bugbear is that I will see people posting with their big glass of wine and then two days later talking about their anxiety and just thinking, guys, how, how do these... Things. Yeah. The, the reason I don't drink is because it, it is the worst trigger imaginable for my anxiety and, and, and depressive tendencies. Mm. Um, because it's a brilliant mask, isn't it? But only yeah. to a certain point. 
Yeah, and I think this is, um, I'm hoping, I, I'm certainly seeing this more and more, hoping that we're reaching a point where we understand that a lot of the behaviours that we've often really denigrated in society, that we've really shamed, such as addictions, for example, mm -hmm. such as smoking, um, we've often said, oh, these are bad habits. You know, people have bad lifestyle choices. Yes. Actually, addictions and other um other coping they're, they're basically coping skills that arose in the absence of other more effective ways mm -hmm. of managing however you feel and we would add kind of emotional eating into that too yeah so it's time to stop shaming people and start asking what is underneath the behavior mm -hmm. and what might be a more useful way of thinking about that person's distress it's so interesting again i'm going to keep making this really personal but i've just come off the block a massive block of emdr therapy mm which is, I mean, is absolutely wild. Yes. <laughs> it's absolutely wild. And I was doing that in parallel to the book, actually. But so much of how that manifested for me was adult me wanting to go back to younger versions of me and just give them the advice I have now. Amazing. Which, yes. and that actually is how I resolved quite a few things. And, and there's something amazing about that, uh, uh, that I did work out the answers and I just didn't know them, you know. And I kept on yeah. wanting to 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 do what I do now to to manage situations but I didn't I didn't know and I, and that's I think what we have to really give ourselves a break for you can't know until you know and and yeah it is all a bit they're all for me I've just learned different tools along the way I've learned when to exercise and I've learned to check in with emotional eating and you can't solve them my default will still be to want to have a drink and to emotional eat and to control in any way but I, I can know that I'm doing it and it doesn't mean that I don't do it but I stop doing it quicker yes so you have a new habitual pathway that's the thing is again when your brain has kept you safe for a really long time you can imagine it as a well-trodden path in a field and so when you step into that field i.e something stressful happens in your life your brain's like let's go down this well-trodden path which equals for example booze or eating in mm -hmm. a certain and it what you do is with practicing new skills you eventually create a new path but it's just because you haven't done it as many times, that path is more lightly trodden. You know, if you walked into a field and set off a new path, mm. you'd look back and you maybe wouldn't even see your footprints. So okay. over time, when you've practiced that new skill, for example, pausing, deciding not to drink and doing something else, that pathway does become stronger. So it's not that you um, never heal or that you always have that problem. It's that that other pesky little pathway is always there. And if you face a new stressor, it is the one your brain is going to show you first because mm -hmm. it's in the past and it's a really deep groove but don't give up hope <laughs> to anyone listening because I bet they're thinking ah what if I've got to create a new pathway it's going to take forever you'll get there and also on that analogy that often the, the new path is just like one row of corn across and that I kind of <laughs> took me a long time to realize that you know and, and over time those those tracks move further and further apart I think my default is to look for huge life-changing Mm. actions which yeah sobriety is one of those but actually even sobriety is not drinking today not drinking tomorrow it's not everyone's like is it forever I don't know I'm just not going to yeah. drink today I know that um and it's the same with all of it like starting to move more or I don't know they're just such incremental changes aren't they yeah I once read this quote that said um if you wanted to start what was it if you wanted to start something like a new dental regime floss one tooth and it's just, we never think about that, right? If I want to floss my teeth every day, I'm not going to think, oh, I'll just do one today. 
But the reality is if you just do one, the next day you'll be like, oh, I have time to just do one. And the next day I have time to just do one. Whereas, and I see this in my clinic all the time, you'll give someone something, a new skill, let's say journaling, for example. Uh, it's the thing that people never go away and do. So I'm giving you it as an example. <laughs> <laughs> they might on the first day be really excited about it. Yeah, right? stick it. They've got so much to say. Yeah, they get really stuck in. Maybe they'll end up even doing 45 minutes. Then the next day, they're maybe still quite excited because the day one felt good. So they really get stuck in and maybe do 45 minutes. Now, I've only told them, suggested, do five or ten. The next day, they're like, well, I don't have 45 minutes. So I'll have to do it tomorrow. And the next day, well, the habit is broken. Yeah. So if you can honestly do less than you imagine, you're talking about putting one step foot in front of the other, yeah. right? I wake up and I know that, am I going to drink today? No, I'm not going to drink today. That is far more manageable than saying, when you had your last drink, because I worked with people, this is the last drink I'm ever going to have, which no. puts a lot of pressure on you mm. and makes it much more likely that you're going to start drinking mm -hmm. again. So everything is choose the smallest act, start it today and build from there. Yeah. And also, if you don't do it tomorrow, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it the day Ooh. after. That's Ooh. And yeah, if you've got a kind of addictive personalities or obsessive personalities, whatever, then I yeah, it's really easy for me to do the all or nothing approach. But actually, a little bit fairly often is a really good start. Yeah, there's this great drawing of a ladder and the... Um, I'm going to just try and describe the picture. But there's two ladders next to each other. And the first ladder has um, the first the first rung of the ladder is really high up. And the ladder rungs are really far apart. And then the ladder next to it has lots of rungs really close to each other. So imagine steps really mm -hmm. close to each other. Now, most of us, when we tackle any, try to tackle any new habit, we go for that first ladder, right? We want to do the big step Maybe. on the first day, big leap on the next day and keep leaping. And in the image, they have someone trying to reach up to that first rung of the ladder, not able even to reach that first rung. Mm -hmm. On the second ladder, which is what few of us ever think about, where there's loads and loads of steps, so it's probably 100 steps compared to 20, the person is just easily just walking up the yeah, steps. chipping away. It take you longer, but you're much more likely to get there and stick than if you do big leaps that actually might be too much for you at the mm. time. But I guess this ladders, good pun, ladders back to that thing is if we're in desperate, if we are leaning on these when we're in desperate times, when you're just like, I, I desperately need a big change in my life for X, Y and Z, that's, that's how we end up there. But even in those big life crisis moments, it's so often something really small that can make all the difference. I often, when I'm in a patch of deep anxiety where it feels like the world is ending, I really try and work out what the one thing is that is that has tipped it and sometimes it can be that I've got a meeting in that's a little bit too early in the morning you know is at nine and if it was at ten and I had chance to check over my notes it wouldn't it wouldn't feel so dramatic and it, it yeah it's it's think yeah it's catastrophizing I suppose is what it is <laughs> as someone as a fellow anxiety <laughs> I really understand but also one really tiny thing that really uh, helps a lot of people, including myself, when anxiety is really high, is thinking, what is the smallest part of what I'm doing right now? So, for example, um, when I was writing the books, that book, because I was writing in a pandemic and I had two full-time jobs at the same time and was really overwhelmed, there were points where my anxiety was quite high. And at the beginning of the day, I'd be thinking, oh my God, I've got to write this whole book. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I thought, what's the smallest part of what I'm doing right now? I'd be like, I'm sitting at a desk in front of a computer typing. 
And I was like, I can do that. Yeah. I could, those are things I can do. Yeah. And I can write oh, a sentence and then I'll write another yeah. sentence. Yes, exactly. Or I'd go for, um, when my anxiety was really high, I'd go for a walk and be like, this is meant to be refreshing. This is my exercise. This is when my brain's meant to reset. Exactly. So much pressure. And I think, oh, I what I'm doing right now. And I'm like, ruining it. Yeah, I'm ruining it. But exactly. Then you beat yourself up. But I'd be like, oh, I'm just placing my feet on the floor, walking around the block. I can do that. And suddenly my anxiety was minimized. Like, well, it was brought down significantly. And I was like, I'm not overwhelmed by the prospect of what's about to happen. Mm. I'm just focused on the smallest thing in front of me right now. So the changes that we often need to make in our life can be very, very small. Mm-hmm. And incrementally, you will get to the bigger ones. Yeah, that is, I think, yeah, that is the biggest thing that you can, I think you can take away from all of this. And also, I think it, people forget to say, it's this, it's this duality of it's really small, but it's not easy it's not easy and but it shouldn't be easy as you said our brains are want to always want to bounce back you know I've I've gave up smoking a long time ago 15 years ago I still will sometimes just think walk past someone like oh I love a fag I don't Mm -hmm. smoke I haven't I haven't smoked for years but my brain is when I started smoking as a teenager it was probably very malleable and like that made a big impression but yeah. you, you, but you still have to make the choice over and over and over and over again, don't you? And go against the path of least resistance. Yeah, and I think this is a real issue with psychology. Is people um, often hear some of the coping skills, some of the suggested tools to manage, and because they sound so simple, like for example, choosing people might think, oh, choosing not to drink each day sounds really simple. But actually, if you've lived it, it's not. No. Yeah. But yeah. when you hear the suggestion or um, you almost laugh it off. Like, my problems are too big to be solved by such a simple idea. And there's a real problem here because it means people don't try the little things, the things that we know incrementally work. Mm. So some psychology sounds simple, sounds basic. I promise you it isn't when you live it. <laughs> so please don't underestimate the tools that people do suggest to you if you are struggling. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I sound like someone who's done every bit of therapy, but that's because I've done a lot of it. I d- I did um, a patch of CBT. I did a, a block of CBT after a, yeah, a really low period of anxiety. I spent the whole time throughout all the sessions going, "This isn't working. This isn't working. Yes. Why am I doing this? This isn't working. What a pointless exercise! I'm going to do it yeah. because I'm a good girl. I'm a people pleaser." Yes. And then at the end, I was like, "All right, that's worked." <laughs> Exactly that, exactly that. I can't believe you're telling me to breathe. I breathe all the time. It's definitely not going to work. That you practice a breathing exercise day in, day out, which if your anxiety is really bad, you often do end up doing. I had like my breathing exercises in my ears 24-7 when my panic was bad as an 18-year-old. And then suddenly one day I was like, oh, oh, that I seem to have breathed my way through a panic attack. I should probably stop telling my therapist that they have no idea what they're talking about. It's so mad though, isn't it? It's so mad. Yeah, I, for overnight, developed a terrible fear of the tube, which, to be honest, even now I'm over that. I understand why I felt it. It's not nice to be yes. trapped underground. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it was my commute, so I had to do it. And I got to a point that I couldn't even get on. And then bit by bit, and then actually what happened for me is I did get stuck underground for about half an hour once. And it was hell. But then my brain was like, oh, you've just experienced your worst case scenario. And, and you survived. And nothing happened. It was it was probably less unpleasant than the panic attacks I'd been having in the imagined version of that scenario. Of course, that's how anxiety works. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually have, um, you, you won't have seen it, I think, because it probably is right in the back of the book. But um, I actually give a plan that people can use to adapt to whatever it is that they're avoiding in life. To yeah. But the exact example I give is the tube. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I used to have to do the Northern Line, and it was the, as we went under the river, begun to be my absolute. Mm. Which, but the thing is, yeah, my rational brain knows that actually that isn't very nice, as I say. But what happened was, then you need to get the water and the chewing gum before you get in the tube, and then if you haven't got time to do that, then you're worrying about that. And then I started to get the train, and then I went off the train, and then and then I thought this has got to stop because I'm. Yeah. I'm losing sight of who I am. And yeah. that's, I think that, again, for me, that's always a really grounding thing. Because it's easy to convince yourself that maybe that's who you're going to become. Maybe I'm going to be someone who doesn't really want to go out, doesn't like travelling. Yeah. And then I was like, no, I don't think that is who I am. And therefore, it is worth working to get back to the person that I am. Also, because when you find out... Sorry, I'm smiling because I really understand that. <laughs> At 18, I definitely felt like that. I can't even tell you how convinced I was that this was just life. I'm just, yeah, I'm just a really rubbish adult. Yeah, I just, I'm just going to have to cycle everywhere even if it's six hours away. Um, <laughs> but um, what makes it particularly difficult to take the steps we need to do is because when you hear that, part of the treatment for your anxiety and claustrophobia, for example, or fear of getting stuck on the tube, is going to be going on the tube. You're like, oh, hell no. I will live like this. It's <laughs> Why would I do that? Yes, exactly. So um, it feels counterintuitive that um, the treatment for, for example, fear of the fear of the tube is going on the tube, but it is ultimately how you learn. Exactly as you said, that even when your worst scenario happens, it's almost it's rarely ever as terrifying as you think it's going to be, and you learn that you survive it by going into those spaces. Yeah. But again, you do it in a graded way. It's so true. And, and the, the madness of anxiety, this is how I knew it was anxiety, is that mm. if I am in actual crisis, I, I back myself to be yeah. quite a good person in that, quite calm. And that's where I knew that, yeah, it, something bigger was going on. But, yeah, do you know what? Anxiety is thrown around quite a lot, but when it gets really gets its claws into you, it is so life-shrinking, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think anyone who hasn't experienced it can truly understand the terror. It's horrible. It's it's so full body. Yes. Um, and it and it and it escalates. And but as per the CBT chat, it, it what I want people to know is it does it doesn't have to be your life. Like I, I will always have to do you know not drink exercise mm. to keep my anxiety in a better place, but. Yeah, I at that point in my in the crisis thought this is it. My life is going to be very small, and it really, 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 really doesn't have to be, does it? One hundred percent. I didn't leave the house for three months because my anxiety developed rapidly. Wow. I know it was really intense. Um, I went from like being on holiday, like traveling with a friend, like the first time I'd done that at eighteen, and then unable to leave the house. Um, and I say this not to elicit sympathy for me. I say this to say, you know, at that time, people would tell me, oh, people with anxiety, they never get over this. They just find a way to live with it. And that was terrifying to me. Like, oh, this is a small life now. I will only be in my house. Um, and at 18 at my parents' house, like, this is just what's going to happen. 
No, no, there is support out there that can help you not only find a way to live with it, oh. but also for many people to actually overcome it. I like I attack in years. Yeah. I would say that the burnout I experienced from writing the book in the pandemic nearly took me mm. back there. But again, I started doing all the things I know work. I was doing breathing exercises. I listened to rain sounds. I had ice cold showers when the anxiety hit. Right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> to do this too. Well, there's, there's some tracks on the car map that I actually would struggle <laughs> to listen to now. <laughs> that's not associated with stress. Yeah, because I, I just listen to them like in a really like plug into my ear kind of unhealthy way. But, but also I think the difference is, and I'm again speaking for myself, I was aware that I was pushing myself quite close. It's a, I can only compare it to what I imagine doing extreme sport is. You know, I knew I was skating close to the edge of my mental health, but I I no. accepted that it probably wouldn't, that I hoped it wouldn't be forever. I think it probably, yeah, went on for longer than I thought. I <laughs> think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a really important message. It's quite off the, it's very specific to anxiety, but please don't. Um, I just always want people to go to their GP. I know there's, you know, the NHS is stressed, but I, I was only ever received with, amazing support and kindness when I went to the doctor about uh, being about mental health yeah and if you do um if you do go there and you do end up seeing someone there is nothing like having someone sit in front of you who says yeah the way you feel makes sense and there's something we can do about it yeah yeah and and it can be different it really can be different and uh, yeah because you do I do you see how it happens that people live with it and think that's the way it is and it's exhausting it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You're on high alert all the time. You're burning through the energy. You're not sleeping. It's oh. just, oh, it's hell. And, it, and the thing is, it begins to shape shift into different things, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah Anxiety is horrible. It's actually making my palms sweat. So we're going to move on from. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get to the moving forward bit, which we have covered. But the bit that I really loved in your um, to move forward bit is, is living by your values and remembering what your values are versus your goals. And we've been talking very small, small, but I think it's really important to try and ladder back out to that big stuff too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So was there a question in there? Oh, well, it wasn't. It was actually just me saying <laughs> stuff. It was like, could you explain what, what you mean when you say goals versus values? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I love it. I was like waiting. Like, anyway, was there a question mark? No, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So generally we live our lives based on the goals that we have. So for example, um, we often have timelines from, from being very young, right? A lot of girls specifically are socialized to believe that at X age, I will have a house. At Y age, I'll have a husband. And it really is that kind of heteronormative. Mm. And at Z age, I'll have children, right? So we all have these kind of internalized timelines. They might be around work. They might be around relationships. It could be about anything. And a goal is something that you can tick off a list, right? You either are dating or you're not. You either have a house or you don't. You have children mm. or you don't. Now, there's issues in here, and that is that we're almost taught to believe that uh, if we want a goal, we can have it. And if we don't have it, therefore, we didn't try hard enough or, um, you know, there's something wrong with us. The reality is actually, for example, in dating, is that you only contribute to half of the dating experience. So <laughs> you cannot control when you meet the right person for you. In terms of, for example, children, actually, lots of people struggle with getting pregnant mm -hmm. for multiple reasons. 
This is a reality and not due to the failing on someone's you know, part. In terms of jobs, whether you get a job or not does not necessarily boil down to your skills. It could be where we are in the market. Think about people coming out of university in the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Um, but because we live our lives based on these goals, a lot of us feel good, achieving, successful if we can tick things off the list and feel like we're failing if we don't. Mm-hmm means our livelihood, our wellness is basically dictated by things that are often out of our control. So what we do to gain a more sustainable understanding of um, what we truly want in life, so we don't have so many regrets on our deathbed, for example, and to ensure our mood isn't constantly dictated by this past fail of goals, is we think about our values. So values are the qualities that you want in each area of your life. For example, yes, you could tick off your list being in a relationship or not, But if you value kindness, for example, or loyalty, you can't be kind once or loyal once and tick it off the list. Mm. Your values are the qualities you can engage in every day. So, for example, um, when we think about our values, you, you and I give you an exercise in the back of my book. You write down each of the areas of your life that are important to you. Maybe it's family, maybe it's social relationships, maybe it's work, maybe it's recreation. And in each of those areas, you decide what are the qualities of these things that I want to see in my life. Mm-hmm. Once you've rated them in terms of importance, figured out what works for you and what, um, what matters to you, every day you guide your ship by leaning into your values. Mm. Doesn't mean you don't have goals, right? So if I think about, for example, my book, finishing the book was a goal. But every time I thought about sitting down in front of my computer and writing this whole book, I was overwhelmed. My values, however were sharing information, helping others to understand themselves, right? Lots Mm. of different things like that. So each day when I sat down at the computer, I could instead be like, rather than thinking about the whole book, my motivation today is sharing psychological information, helping others to help themselves. Mm. Then that meant I ticked off those values every day and had a sense of achievement Mm. every day. Mm. So values, if we can live a value-driven life, we are much more likely to feel content in who we are. And as I mentioned before, we're much less likely to have those deathbed regrets, which Mm. we see time and time again, people saying, which is, I wish I'd lived my life in a way that mattered to me rather than what I'd been told. I'm nodding along and it's it's so true. And you're not chasing that, that, because I'm a sucker, of course. Of course I am, because it's everything I've said about myself, but for for ticking things off a list. And of course, yeah to do the to-do list is is um is very appealing but actually not chasing that hit all the time is um is also important and if you if you get living by your values which I just don't think we stop and think about at all do we no it took me honestly it took me like four weeks to understand what I was even being taught about values when I first learned about it I was like it doesn't make any sense so it's not a goal or it is a goal I only understand goals Um, it's, but it's, it's, it doesn't just make us happier. It's more sustainable. You know, you and I right mm. at the beginning of the chat talked about, yes, it's a privilege to have highs and lows in your life, but actually it's unsustainable swinging from ecstatic to miserable. Yeah. You, you know, if you want a good quality of life, you want to be closer to the middle bit, content, right? <laughs> so values are one of the many ways that we reach that middle ground. Mm-hmm. She's done it. She's nailed it. And I'm also looking at the time and just like you've condensed a a book and years and years and years of um, education into a very insightful chat. Can I ask you two questions before you go? Quick ones. 
number one where can people find you and give one more good pitch for the book so that people can go and buy it Okay, so you can find me on Instagram at at underscore D-R-S-O-P-H, so at underscore Dr. Soph. I always joke that there is another Dr. Soph who has a private account who I think must hate me because they get tagged in so many things. Um, So at underscore Dr. Soph. I have a website, drsoph.com as well. And in terms of the book, you know, the world is going to be a better place if we not only understand our psychology, but if we understand the psychology of others and feel able to lean in when they're distressed. So please buy a manual for being human. It will make the world a better place and you can buy it wherever you buy your books. There you go. She's nailed that. And in, in an ode to the theme of this podcast, if you could have an honest conversation with one person, who would it be and what would you say? Esther Perel. And I'd ask her oh. what her relationships really are like. <sighs> nailed it I would love to I just really would like to just hang out with her yeah she's she's unbelievable isn't she she's amazing powerhouse I want her to be my friend oh I hope she's had slightly dysfunctional relationships not hope that's horrible you know what I mean well in a human way you yeah like reassuringly (laughs) yes exactly reassuringly complicated relationships is what I want to hear we'll tell ourselves that anyway so you don't need to bother we know what Esther says (laughs) thank you so much it's been yeah, such a joy. And I, I wish I'd read the whole book before I chat, but I've, I've, I've taken quite a lot of it on and I think, I think you and it are brilliant. And thank you again for holding my hand during publication. I like thrust myself upon you. <laughs> no, it was my absolute pleasure. I think uh, we need more people who've been through the process showing up for the people who are going through the process yeah. next. This is really hard. I'm here for you. If you need to vent or jump up and down on the bed celebrating, I'm here for you. Yeah, which you did. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on and congratulations on your book. It's amazing. Well, that made me feel all the feelings. We did a real whistle-stop tour then, didn't we? Control, anxiety, addiction, attachment. What a smart person. But also, what important information she's trying to put out in the world about understanding ourselves and all the layers that make us human, which on the one hand is really obvious, but on the other, it makes me go, whoa, no wonder we all end up in complicated places. I say that as someone who is not cruising towards their 40th birthday very well, but yeah, our, our families, our experiences, our attachment styles, the habits that we pick up, etc., etc. they all, yeah, they all make us who we are. And though I, of course, advocate for self-acceptance, I also am very, very passionate about not finding yourself stuck in in a hole and thinking it's the only way through it. There are always options, especially if your mental health is patchy or if you've got habits that feel like they're overwhelming you. So please do seek support and do go follow Sophie and of course go and buy her book. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to But Why. It's so grateful to have you here. I make the joke every time, but I can't believe that this is my job and I get to learn from these amazing people. Join me next week for more Honest Chats. And in the meantime, please rate, review, subscribe and tell your mates all about it. I'd also love to hear from you at butwhy at kemitelford.com. And right now I'm off to go and do a workout because what I've learned at the back end of these podcasts, I get a massive, massive adrenaline drop. And seeing as we've been talking about anxiety, if I don't try and put that somewhere, it will linger around as a horrible, anxious feeling for the rest of the day. So I'm going to go and sweat now. Um, Wishing you a lovely day too. Goodbye.